Welcome to the Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast, where we are all about going beyond programs, beyond best practices, and beyond curriculum to recover and learn from our Wesleyan roots and to explore the foundations for small groups that are organized to beat the devil and that produce disciples of Jesus Christ who in turn disciple others. My name is Scott Hughes, and I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Discipleship Ministries. And I'm Steve Manskar, soon to be the pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today's episode is a treat. I mean, they're all, all our episodes, I hope, are a treat. But th- th- <laughs> I think this was extra fun. We really enjoyed having uh, Professor James K.A. Smith, otherwise as we'll refer to him as Jamie, uh, as he, he asks us to, on, on this podcast. It was, a, it was a wonderful interview. You'll get to hear that in just a minute. For those who don't know, James K.A. Smith is professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He has written numerous books. Uh, the book that we're going to hold up today that you'll hear us talk about is You Are What You Love. The Spiritual Power of Habit is the Yeah, and I'm glad you said the, the subtitle because it, it is very descriptive, yeah. And this this book is, I'll just add, is sort of a, his fleshing out mm-hmm. of an I- ideas that he developed in a previous much bigger book called Desiring the Kingdom. Which is also worth your time. It is definitely worth your time, yeah. yes. So I'm going to begin getting a, get us into this this conversation with Jamie Smith by reading and the op- some couple of opening paragraphs mm-hmm. at from the very beginning of the book yep. You Are What You Love where he begins What do you want That's the question It is the first last and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When two would-be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow, Jesus wheels around on them and pointedly asks, What do you want? It's the question that is buried under almost every other question. Jesus asked each of us, Will you come and follow me? Is another version of, what do you want? As is the fundamental question Jesus asks of his errant disciple Peter, do you love me? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? Um, Well, we're here with... um James K.A. Smith, how do you want us to address you, Dr. Smith? Better question. Please, just call me Jamie. Okay, because I know that's what uh, Lewis Lewis kept. Yes. So we didn't want to presume that. uh, No, 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 please. So so we're here with Jamie Smith, and uh, I'm I'm, uh, very thrilled to be here with you and that you are giving us some of your time to talk about uh, one of your books. Uh, it's a book that uh, listeners of this podcast have heard me quote from yeah, sure. and encourage them to, to read and to use in their churches. Uh, the title is You Are What You Love, uh, The Spiritual Power of Habit. Um, and I'll, I'll just begin because we want to hear mostly from you and not from us. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I like the way you begin this book right on the first page where you write... What do you want? That's the question. 
It's the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. So can you unpack for us what, what that means? Yeah, um, I, I guess part of my concern or interest is the extent or ways that maybe Protestantism in particular um, has been prone to think about discipleship informationally. Um, that is, growing in Christ is is construed as an exercise in expanding your knowledge, um, uh, filling your intellectual tank, so to speak, um, and as if knowing the right things was adequate to account for sanctification. And I, I, I'm very pro-knowledge. I'm a philosopher. I literally get paid to think all day long. And my wife still can't believe anybody cares what I think. But um, and, and so I, I don't mean to denigrate that, but I think we all have an experience of um, the gap between what we know, what we understand, what we believe, and um, what we do, right? This gap between our our beliefs and our behaviors, so to speak. And and I don't want to I don't want to instrumentalize this, but there's a sense in which I think a really more robust and holistic account of the Christian life is going to take seriously that what drives me, what animates me, what what moves me, uh, is not just a trickle down from the things I believe, but it's much more a bubble up from my hungers and loves and longings. It's, it's why I think Bruce Springsteen is actually a great theologian when he says everybody's got a hungry heart. Yeah. Uh, and, and we act out of our, our hungers, our wants, our cravings, our desires. And I guess just getting people to sort of attend to that facet of who they are is, I think, the beginning of a new kind of maturity and intentionality, perhaps, about the Christian life. That's what I'm after. So I know this book is very, you, you, you talk about Augustine. Yes, right? yes. So it's a very Augustinian understand, you know, theology, and which makes, you know, no, I, I'm not, some people call me a Wesley scholar, I, I wouldn't put myself in that, that category, but I have read Wesley a lot, mm -hmm. and I remember that he quotes in one of his sermons um, that, that's titled, uh, On Working Out Our Salvation, he quotes Augustine. And see if I get this quote right. Is that the God this is who the, made This is the, the test of how much of a Wesley scholar you <laughs> are. Yes, yes. Right. The God who made us without us, the God who made us without ourselves will not save us without ourselves. Uh, uh, uh. Which, and then he goes on to explain that we need to participate in what God wants to do in us. Yeah. And that's what Paul means, and that's what, you know, he, he's unpacking that phrase in, in Philippians 2, was it 13, work out your yep. own salvation. And that's, you know, and I think that's what you're talking about, and that's what I get in this book, is that discipleship is more than what we think or believe, that as important as those things are, but what we think and believe need to be lived and need to compel us or move us towards how we behave, which leads to, as you, I think, beautifully state, the formation of habits. Yes, right. And, and I, think it's, I think it's appreciating that um, the order of priority here is not 
necessarily or maybe even typically getting your ideas and beliefs straight so that then that leads to the right actions, behavior, and service. That in fact, um, oftentimes there, there is a kind of priority to your hungers and longings and desires that those need to be captivated. And you, you can't, the one way I put it is you can't think your way to holiness. Mm -hmm. So, so what's going to, what, what engenders the kind of holistic sanctification we're talking about here is not just getting more knowledge, not even listening to this podcast will lead to your <laughs> sanctification. Wait right? a second now. It, 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 <laughs> it, it really has to be about, um, the conversion of our habits of wanting, our habits of desire, our habits of longing, that takes practice. That takes rhythms and immersions in God's story in such a way that now it seeps into us at that level. And, and as you know from the book, too, I mean, this also has to be an account of our deformation. Of mm. our, temptation works in exactly the same way. Mm. Temptation is not usually my being suckered by a bad idea and thinking, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, yeah. it's much more. It's not luring that way. It, right, exactly. It's, 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 um, it's more this, this disordering of our love. So I, I love it that you've brought Augustine into the conversation because maybe it would be helpful for listeners too to say this is not the caricature of Augustine that they perhaps know. This is not the Augustine of election predestination debates. This is the Augustine who says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, right? And right. The, the heart aflame how much more Methodist can you get, right? This this heart of flame right. uh, sort of picture. That's the Augustinian picture that we're talking about. Well, I know for me what was really helpful is you give an analogy I've heard several times or an example of, of the fish swimming in the sea and it being pointed out to them they're in the water and they're like, what's, what's water? Right, and, and I think for a lot of what I run into anyway is people don't seem to realize how immersed they are in what you call secular liturgies. Right. And, and when it comes to small groups, I think, for me anyway, I'd like to get your comment on that, that's one of the purposes or roles small groups can function as, as ways they can say, hey, I don't think you realize how immersed you are in this. So can you say more about that? Yeah, so let, can we back up a little and say, uh, to tie the themes together here, we are what we love. Uh, you know, our lives are governed much more by our wants than our knowings. Okay. Yeah. But our loves and our longings and our desires are less chosen than we might realize, right? Like the way yeah. the way those are inscribed in us is much more through the rhythms and rituals that we give ourselves over to. And this this is where your water, you know, this is water metaphor comes in is that there are so many facets of just living in late modern American capitalist consumer culture that we don't even realize. They're not just things we do. They're doing something to us, right? They're, they're training our wants. They're deforming our wants. And so on the one hand, that I'm calling those liturgies for me are love-shaping practices. Love right? think, of, think of small L liturgy is love-shaping practice, heart-training practice. And if you expand the conception in that way, then there are liturgies everywhere, right? There's, with rival stories about who I should be and what I should be after. So I think you're right. Uh, um, 
part of the, the goal here is to just become aware that you're in water, right? To become aware that you are, are immersed. You're doing things that are doing something to you. And then, and then positively and constructively coming up with countermeasures, which for me is at its heart found around word and table in the gathered body of Christ and in, in the liturgies of Christian worship. But so let's – sorry, I'm talking a bit too much. But no, you're doing great. This is awesome. So, so let's go to your small group question then. Yeah. Um, absolutely, I think one of the – because an hour and a half on a Sunday morning is clearly – not adequate to counterform us right. to the you know week of secular liturgical immersion. So, um, what I and, and what I think is the small group is in some ways the most indigenous of Protestant practices. <laughs> Do you know, like I, I would say, uh, um, uh, it's 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 the liturgical practice that sometimes feels most at home for, for folks like me who are, you know, coming out of evangelical Protestantism or, or Protestantism more broadly. And um, it strikes me that one of the things that can happen in a small group is, precisely as you put it, Scott, that we can, they can become their own little incubator of awareness, right? They can become their own little check-in time amongst a community of friends in Jesus to sort of say, what have I been swimming in this week? What what have I not noticed? What has gone past my blinkered attention and I haven't realized has actually been grabbing hold of my gut? So I, I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah, you know, I think what often happens in small groups is exactly what you're trying to, to, to argue against, and that is study. Let's just do more study, and then the next mm -hmm. study, and mm -hmm. the next study. And it really changes the way a small group can function if it becomes, and I love this phrase, the way you said it, an incubator of awareness. Yeah, great. Right, I mean, I think that if we can form that in small groups to make that, um, as Steve likes to talk about, accountable discipleship, right, I mean, being accountable to, wow, what? I, I didn't realize at first, but now I'm beginning to see how these acts are shaped, deforming me, and how I yep. need to take on these new acts to form me. And just being aware of that sometimes uh, is what needs to happen. And, and one of the reasons why I think the small group can be such a gift in this regard is precisely because, um, you know, the things that are closest to me, imagine, uh, you know, the, the thing that's sitting here right on my chest actually falls outside of my own field of vision. That's right. I can't see where my hand is right now, but you can. And in that sense, I probably almost essentially need other people to help me to see the kind of cultural liturgies that are closest to me and probably most to which I'm most susceptible. So the gift of community in that discernment. I also I just think there's a lot of opportunity. I agree with you, by the way. Sometimes, um, especially I come out of evangelical backgrounds, and I think – if you fall into this kind of thinking thingism version of discipleship, you think it, it's not a spiritual thing unless there's a Bible study, right? Or you, you think it's not, it's not, uh, um, it doesn't count unless we we do a study. And again, I'm not down on we, we need all the biblical literacy we can get without question. But there are so many other kinds of spiritual disciplines and means of grace that are available to us as a small group beyond biblical input. Right. And um, I'll, 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 I'll be honest. In fact, I, for my wife and I, um, 
there were there have been seasons in our life in which small group has been an absolute lifeline for us. And what one I would give actually very concretely is when I was in grad school doing my PhD at Villanova. Go Wildcats! Um, <laughs> get that in there, yeah. Uh, in a sense, I would say every Friday night with a group of I want to say about four other young couples. Uh, all of us had kids piled all over the place. We would get together every Friday night, and we would have somebody would make some soup, and uh, kids would be roaming all over the place, and we would spend a little bit of time in scripture and then prayer. And uh, it was very important, by the way, that most of the other people, in fact, everyone else in the group was not an academic, not in a PhD. You know, that's really, really important. And and without question, that was an incredible means of grace in our life. You know, like. 50% of marriages fail in PhD programs. I mean, there's just so many threats that come in, in inhabiting that space. And it was, it was just a given check-in for us to be sort of alongside friends who would journey with us. It was accountability. It was nurture. It was support. So I, I think you're right. There's, um, just to take one example, I think one of the deformative cultural liturgies that we grapple with in an age of consumerism and social media is this irony that on the one hand, we all have social media. On the other hand, it breeds astounding competition and loneliness. (laughs) So I, I think social isolation is probably the academic that the church should be addressing right now. Well, that and systematic racism. And um, if you think about loneliness and social social isolation as as an epidemic of consumerism and social atomism, in some ways, just by creating a space where people learn how to be friends is a remarkably countercultural moment. And if you think about discipleship as becoming friends of God and friends with God's friends, now all of a sudden, just doing small group is doing something, right? It doesn't it doesn't have to be about the intellectual inputs. Um, now, there's I think there's all kinds of smart, healthy ways to structure that, so it's not just therapeutic sharing or whatever it might be. But but and you guys, I'm sure you guys have lots of wisdom about that. But I, I think you're right that the small group uh, qua gathering is already doing something to us. By nature, it's forming. I think so. Yes, exactly. And and because there's there's even something in our culture, um, there's something about just saying, I am going to prioritize this community and good over the 16 million other <laughs> things uh, that that want to make a claim, especially for those of us who basically enjoy comfortable middle class lives. Uh, uh, what what the culture asks of us is to give ourselves over to a million other things, and to make a priority of being friends of God's friends is already doing something to us. I think uh, you know I, I think one of the great dev- well well what do I care I I'll, I'll never see you guys again but uh, uh, um, so <laughs> there, there's this well I might see Steve because he's moving right. to Grand Avenue. Oh, oh, cool. <laughs> I'll say this. I do think we need to name one of the cultural liturgies that threatens deform, to deform us is what I would call the youth sports industrial complex. Oh, yeah. And and just the kind of culture of attainment and success and 
padding your college application resume and all those kinds of things. It we give ourselves over to that liturgy because that that's somebody has convinced us that's what it means to be good parents. And in and in basically we let the culture dictate our calendars and our clocks. In that way, we've already seeded our formation uh, to other cultural dynamics. So I, I that's why I think. Just getting people committed to a group is already the beginning of wisdom. He's gone to meddling now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Jamie, I, I, when, when I worked, I used to work here at Discipleship Ministries, and a couple of weekends ago, actually Scott went with me to a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was maybe my last workshop for Discipleship Ministries. Um, and, and it's a workshop on to, to teach congregational. There was a, a number of pastors there and lay people from several different congregations to learn about a model of small groups called covenant discipleship groups, which are basically um, accountability groups for discipleship. Um, and a common objection that comes up, and it came up in this this session, was... And I tell people the time commitment for a covenant subject group is one hour a week to show up with five or six other Christians in the same room for one hour to give an account of our discipleship to one another and to pray together. And the objection is, who has another hour? To which my response is, we make time for what's important. Yep, yep. And it's like for some of the people in the room, they hadn't thought of that concept before. Yeah, yeah, they didn't see yeah. <laughs> exactly. They didn't, they didn't see really. the homework. They didn't see the yeah. Yeah, it's like show me your day timer, and I'll tell you who you serve, right? <laughs> so, and it seems to me the trick is um, how how can we invite people to? I think you're right, Steve. That a lot of people just have never asked themselves that question, and then how can we? invite people to reflect on the decisions they're making with their time as them as itself a matter of discipleship and do so in a way that it doesn't feel immediately judgy that's right. and, and you know sure. uh, haughty and dismissive I, I think that's right um, because the, the way you would want to frame it is to say you know you almost can't afford not to do this if you're going to be able to generate a center a, a Christ center in your life that has the the roots to withstand the gale force winds of all the cultural challenges that, that we face right um i mean the other the other thing i love about the small group focus and possibility is it just seems to me there's a ton of opportunity to build bridges reflective bridges intentional bridges from sunday morning to what we're doing in our small group. So, so in the same way that Scott was saying, you know, the small group itself becomes a place where we can become aware of the cultural liturgies that are getting a hold of us. Couldn't they also become a space where we now deepen our understanding of why we do what we do when we gather around word and table and how the story of God and Christ that we rehearse on Sunday mornings um, can now be deepened and extended and and uh, um, extrapolated in our small group realities, right? So that it doesn't feel like two different worlds. Exactly. It feels like more like this, you know, I always get these mixed up. Centripetally, we all come together to gather on Sunday around word and table. 
And then in our small groups, that's part of our centrifugal sending, but we still have these sorts of intentional gatherings as the people of God throughout the week. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. Because what otherwise what happens is we become more fractured. Yeah. Right? We have to, yes. as you think yes. the calendar, it's like, well, I have this one o'clock on Sunday morning, I have this one o'clock where I go to a small group, and this is time here. Whereas that vision of this is one of the ways we're sent out is 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 that. So I think that's that's extremely, extremely helpful and, and right on point. One other point that I, I'd bring up is is you say, uh, we learn the virtues through intimidation or <laughs> We learn the virtues through imitation um, and how small group leaders and just others in this small group can be that for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is also, you have to be careful how much you talk about that because it could scare people away from being small group leaders. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, it, it's, it is true. Um, on the one hand, the leaders themselves can be models to imitate uh, on the other hand um, there could be let's see, how to put it maybe there are also ways that it doesn't all have to be on the burden of the leader yes. and that in fact incorporated into the practices of a small group are looking at other exemplars <laughs> you know other other models and imitators um, uh, I, I think that's right I, I tend to emphasize that we absorb these practices of love in our these habits of love in our practices. But I also think that there's um, an important way that they are modeled and uh, being intentional about that is important. Well, yeah, and it's, um, well, you just, there's, Scott and I are in a covenant discipleship group. Okay. That meets on Thursday mornings. Um, and to this very point, there, there are, and, and right now, you know, the current configuration of the group is that it's all men. There's, what, six, uh-huh. five, six of us. Um, and there are men in this group now that we've been together for several years, meeting Thursday morning, and all of them, in some way, are people I want to imitate. Absolutely. Yeah. There's yeah. some part of yeah. them that yep. they have something to teach me, and I, I yes. suspect, that, I hope that there's something yes. that I'm able I to bring to the that. table to that. That's a great um, point. That's a great point. It's also, it's, it's also strikes me as a reason to, it, in some context at least, to have intergenerational small groups. Because yes. I know I've learned a lot about being a parent from people who are a generation ahead of me. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'll bring Wesley back into this thing, that... Um, so I think Wesley understood, and, and early Methodism understood the argument that you're making yeah. in this book. Sure. Yes. Um, yes. And particularly in the, the, the early Methodist class meeting, yep. which yep. was a place where people were trained in discipleship. And the first thing... You know, they didn't start by, they didn't, Wesley didn't put a, put him in a study group mm-hmm. to learn how to live as a Christian. They put him in a, in a small group with other newbies with at least one seasoned Christian in the room yeah. and a rule of life, yeah. a set yeah. of practices that then they were encouraged, they were taught how to put these practices into practice and then in their daily lives, and then they met every week with their leader 
to give an account of how they were doing and to pray for each other, to love each other. They learned how to love as God loves by loving each other, by learning how to, you know, to, to love in that way with each other, centered in Christ. Um, and they learned Christian belief and doctrine along the way. Yep. Um, well, I, I think that's, that's, that's great. And so it's nice to be able to go back within your own tradition and basically retrieve the indigenous resources there to motivate this, right? And I, I think, um, uh, I, do you all know the work of like Dorothy Bass and yeah. Craig Dykstra and folks? I, I've always loved Craig at one point says, Christianity is the practice of many practices, right? And that's not because we're earning something. It's just because God gives us these rhythms to live into as themselves means of grace. And I think, or Bonhoeffer's life together is also a powerful picture of this. Or it's funny, as you were talking there, it also struck me that if you um, look at the history of the civil rights movement, uh, there's a great book by Charles Marsh called The Beloved Community, which is a history of the civil rights movement. And what he will emphasize is the extent to which um, it was ecclesial communities of spiritual disciplines and formative practices that created a people who could respond nonviolently to violence. And and there was and it's not because they went and got information at a lecture. It's because they were part of these rhythms of a community that that created capacity in them. I think that's what we're talking about. Um, well, this has been extremely helpful. We appreciate how generous you've been with your time. Anything else you want to? send us off with any other wisdom we haven't touched on yet that you want to impart no no no. this is great i appreciate the interest and i appreciate i i am um, a lot of my focus obviously has been on sort of like gathered christian worship on sunday mornings but i i'm a, I'm a huge advocate and fan of the small group as a sort of amplification and really essential to the to the christian life so happy to contribute to that yeah this has been helpful well i think and yeah I really appreciate your work, Jamie. And um, and if any, I my prayer is that more of our United Methodist brothers and sisters will read and use this book in their congregations because I think it, it it's a it, I think it's a necessary corrective to the way a lot of our um, churches are approaching discipleship. Yeah, and it's a healthy corrective um and and it's even though i know you are a reformed calvinist uh, right, 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 right. the first one on the it's, podcast it's the even wesleyan um, it is, and and wesley wesley was very much influenced by calvin yeah. and uh, oh sure yeah yeah yeah. these are these are old bound one time i was speaking at uh, the indiana wesleyan university because i also have pentecostal background oh. and somebody said um what do you get when you cross a Pentecostal with Reformed tradition? You get a Wesleyan. You get a Wesleyan. That's right. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I really hope that we, uh, that I will, uh, that you and I can get together when I make the move up to Grand. Uh, yeah, yeah. Blessings on that transition. I hope you will love our fair city, and um, it's well, been great talking to you guys. Good appreciate about it. Good. So, uh, and may, maybe I can. Uh, we can teach you something more about small group ministry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, we can use it. <laughs> That's great. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank you All very right. much. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. See ya. You know, I thought that was a great interview with Jamie. And 
I took notes as we were going through that, and I look forward to listening to that interview again for myself. I mean, <laughs> sometimes when you're doing the interview, you sort of get caught up in the questions and whatnot, and there was just so much wisdom in, in what he's saying, and of course, there's a lot in the book as well, but that uh, small group as an incubator of awareness, man, that, that really stuck out to me as we talk about the purpose of a small group. That I think that it just it gives a great image of what a small group should be. And for me, you know, that plus his, you know, gave me something to think about is that the small group, you know, we have people for an hour, maybe hour and a half. Yeah, if we're lucky, yeah. With the liturgy uh, of, and, and, and I think it's important we need to wrestle with, because our liturgy, the way worship is practiced in most of our churches does not involve word and table. Mm, true. Every Sunday. True. And, and I think that's someplace where we need to have some work to do mm-hmm. with maintaining that balance. You know, that's what the liturgy is meant to be, is word and table together every Sunday. And that so that the small group then becomes the place where that, what is, what happens in worship. That's right. Um, is enfleshed yep. and encouraged and helped to, take root mm-hmm. in the small group that meets during the week. That's right. So that, you know, the hour, hour and a half on Sunday isn't enough for That's discipling. Right. That's absolutely right. And, I know, and I've said this in a number, you know, in, in sermons and in writing and teaching that the world is discipling people. Yep. And it's doing a really good job of discipling people. And it has people more than an hour and a half a week. It has them 20... 24 yep. 7. Yep. We only get them for an hour and a half, maybe, and if they're in small groups, maybe three hours a week. Um, so we need to make the, that time count and, and, and equip them to be discipled through relationships and practices and forming habits yep. that helps them to resist what the world is doing to them. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole lot more, right? And we could yeah. do a whole episode just talking about what all we learned yes. uh, from the book and from him, and and so we we do again encourage folks to to get the book. You are what you love, James K. A. Smith, and we would also encourage read the other books as well that he's written. Um, they're they're well worth your your time, well worth it. Um, so again, we want you to to interact with us, send us your comments, your questions. You can find us on Facebook. You can find our email on our website, umcdiscipleship.org. You can find us on Twitter as well. Uh, my Twitter handles are at Rev Scott's Tweets and at UMC Adult Forum for adult formation. And I'm on Twitter at S Manscar, at S M A, get that right, <laughs> at S M A N S K A R, at S Manscar. Yeah, so we appreciate all those who've uh, rated us on iTunes. It helps others find us. And so until next time. Credits. You got it. You can't forget oh, the credits, there, right. Scott. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to do it. You do okay? it. <laughs> so we thank uh, uh, the, the 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 fellows who make this this podcast possible. Matt Carlisle, who's our web producer. Steve Horswell Johnston, who's our executive producer, and of course Blake, Blake. <laughs> who's our technical director and editor. Thanks for that. Yes, I I overlooked that. So thank you. Um, so until next time, peace. Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.